Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. I'm Ed Krasnick, your co-host, my co-host, the great Jennifer Kalari. Coming up shortly, thank God one of us is licensed. Because on this show, we not only talk about mental health, we practice skills. You heard me right, nothing wrong with your hearing. Mental health is a practice. We never do nothing nice and easy. We always do it nice and rough, like Tina Turner. We are your private dancers. The Kelly Carlin Show. Kelly Carlin will join us shortly. We have a lot of things to take care of on today's show. We're going to talk about transformation. We're going to talk about the ability to see yourself for who you are. We're going to talk about change, all kinds of change. And certainly, we've all been through tremendous changes this year, this past couple years. And so we're going to talk a little bit about change and how to deal. Today's show is brought to you by new Hug It Out. Hug It Out is a new kind of blanket that is made to be wrapped with special buttons that hold your arms in place to make it easy to hug yourself. Often, we need a hug or a hand on our heart. And sure, it's great to get it from a partner or a loved one, but that can also come from you. It happens with very soft material, 100% Pima cotton. It can be worn as a bathrobe or a blanket or a throw or a very comfortable straitjacket. I would say tablecloth, but I'd be lying. And when you're using Hug It Out, you don't need to lie as much. The only kind of lying you'll do is lying down in comfort. Sounds simple? It is. Everyone deserves a hug, and you can have it on demand from yourself with Hug It Out. Some of the new shows and movies coming up on the Mental Health Comedy Network, we have the Valvoline Psycholympics where therapists from around the world compete in physical and emotional challenges for cash, prizes, vacations, and medals. We have the Cryathlon, the Health Insurance Coverage Slalom, and the 800-meter Downhill Depression Luge. Now, the movie this week on the channel, on the Mental Health Comedy channel, it's a romantic comedy. You could call it a comedy. It's about two people who go on a retreat and they both fall in love with the same meditation teacher. It's called Piece It Together. And finally, on the network, as if that weren't enough, it's your funeral. This is the reality show where you get to fake your own death to see how people really feel about you. You get to see the service. It's a time to be celebrated. It's your funeral. We always like to welcome people to the show, listeners, no matter what emotional state you're in. Here now are emotional shout-outs. If your horoscope says, don't even start with me today, welcome. If you forget everything that matters but remember every line of a Ted Lasso episode, welcome. If when you get a text message from President Joe Biden, you think he's only sending it to you, welcome. If someone says they're on TikTok and you respond by saying, listen, we're all living on borrowed time, welcome. And if you're building a playground in your living room for all the mood swings, welcome. And if you're beating yourself up even now, there's always a place for you right here on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. And now it's time to bring in our friend from the North and the South, the First Lady of the Limbic System, 
the high priestess of the hippocampus. And it is time for, for the ninja of the neocortex. It's time for Jennifer Kalari. Jennifer, how you doing? You had a birthday. I did. I just had my birthday. I love my birthday. Are you a good birthday celebrant? Because sometimes people are not, they have trouble taking things in. I'm going to guess that you're pretty good at it. I'm pretty good at it. Yeah, I love my birthday. I look forward to it every year. It's awesome. People do have trouble taking things in sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I don't, how good are you at taking a compliment? I'm pretty good. I, I've worked on it though. And it's one of the things that I help my clients work on as well. Because if you can't accept a compliment that really speaks to some, some pretty core beliefs that you have about yourself, you send out a message when someone compliments you and you say, oh no, never mind, not this, not me. I have a whole program that when I'm working with people one-on-one where we work on accepting compliments and appreciating compliments and letting them in and allowing them. What you believe and where you kind of operate from is what your reality ends up looking like. It's what you accept and notice and pull into your awareness. If you have negative thoughts about yourself or you don't think you you know deserve compliments or deserve praise of any kind and somebody says, "Oh," and they compliment you and you and you say, "No, never mind. No, not really." And it actually leaves the other person feeling a bit off. Like when you compliment someone they don't accept it, it also feels a bit awkward if you're the complimenter. I think what I grew up believing about taking compliments is that it wasn't nice. And again, that's a strong message from the hair, the background. It's not nice to do those things. It's not nice. And there's a lot of people who believe that. There's a lot of cultures that believe that. You're arrogant or you're conceited or you're self-important if you accept compliments. But you know, one of the things that I have people do, and if this is resonating for people, is compliment yourself. Right? Get used to it yourself. You don't have to do it out loud and be obnoxious about it, but you know, walk through your day and like, oh, that was nice of me to hold the door open for that person. That was very nice of me. Or that was nice of me to let that person, you know, in in line. Or that that was a nice thing for me to say. Like, just notice all day long and compliment yourself in your own head. Yeah. And the way to think about it is, it's like a bank account. And when you keep making these little deposits. You just raise your balance, right? And, and in the beginning, you're way, you know, you're way in the red. You're, you know, you know, you're in debt, seriously. And that's why when you do this for a little while, at first, it makes no difference in your life. You, you won't notice. But after you've been doing it for a few weeks or even months, you'll start to compliment yourself. You start to notice things about yourself. You'll start to feel better. It will feel easier. Your self-esteem will actually rise and you'll find your beliefs, your limiting beliefs about yourself will start to shift. And you'll be able to accept compliments from the outside with grace and actually appreciate them. They will feel nice. That's, uh, that's, a, that's a great thing to be able to do. And if you start arguing with yourself as you're giving compliments to yourself and you're saying, uh, thank you, but I can't, that's up to you. Well, you know, you, you need to work it out. Yeah, you can work it out between you and you. A lot of these issues that we talk about, are really between not you between and you. you and the yes. outside world. In fact, almost yeah. none of them are. Interesting, but what you're saying is I do have clients who say that to me. I can't. I can't compliment myself. So we find something smaller. Right. We find some small thing to compliment ourselves on or them, themselves on that actually they know is true and they if, feel okay about it. They if do you that. Could and then give, they go, that yeah. you know that's true. You know that this is true. Places where, there are no resi- where there's no resistance. You know, basically we're walking around in virtual reality suits. Honestly, that's what our bodies are. Our body and our brain and all of our senses take in vibration, which is all anything is, and interpret it into reality. 
knowing your body and knowing your emotions and knowing how to shift like, like an instrument, it's like learning to play an instrument. And when you learn how to notice in your body, how you feel from moment to moment, which a lot of people don't, they can be anxious all day or their stomach can be in a knot all day. And they didn't realize it till the end of the day. So just tuning in and being like, Oh, I'm at this like icky kind of awkward vibration right now. I can feel it in my stomach. I can feel it in my chest. Then taking a moment to do a few things to bring yourself back to a better vibration. And you do that without that resistance. You find what you can actually do. That's what we've talked about before when we talk about reach for the next best feeling thought. And if it's too big of a leap to go to, oh, I'm really lucky and I have all these things to to appreciate, just one thing. Like, you know what? These pajamas that I'm wearing are really soft and I, I appreciate that. And there's no resistance there. And just right. stay there train your body and teach your body how to be there in that moment. It's really about awareness. It, and the more I, I think about it as I learn myself and as I teach my clients is that it, it really is like learning to manage your emotions, to feel your feelings, just like you would learn to play an instrument. And again, the benefits of that is that the worst thing that can possibly happen to you is you're going to feel better in the moment immediately. Well, the other thing I want to say is you say virtual reality suits. I'm a 40 short. That's what I've been wearing. I need a bigger suit. And then the other thing, making space for emotions, things like taking in compliments. It's a space. It's like you Mm -hmm. actually have to create a little bit of space. I have to create a little bit of space. It's odd to talk to yourself at first. You know, we talk unchecked. We talk unconsciously. Unconsciously, it's bad. There is a running dialogue in all of our heads all the time. You just have to control what it is that you're talking to yourself about. I want to bring up crying. I'm crying now inside. (laughs) No, I want to bring up crying because, again, making space for something. But I Mm -hmm. think for people now with COVID, with everything that, that we've had to deal with, sometimes you're so overwhelmed and you're in such survival mode, mm-hmm. you really can't cry anymore. How do you deal with that? It's interesting that there's a mechanism in our brain and in our bodies that we can only cry so much. And then the, the brain actually has a lift. If you ever notice at a at a funeral, you know, people will cry and then after a few minutes, they'll start laughing and thinking about wonderful things about that person. And there'll be this ebb and flow, almost like waves. And then you'll cry again. Your body can only be in a really heightened state of emotion for for so long, and then it starts to shut off a little bit just to kind of preserve energy, I guess. And what happens is if you are overwhelmed and you've been crying a lot, then you just can't cry anymore. Or if you're disassociating, not allowing yourself to feel that sadness, your brain will think it's a dangerous place and won't let you go there. And for a lot of people, I feel like if they start crying, they'll never stop. You know, there's myths about crying and there's judgment about crying. Certainly men and boys have been raised with messages that crying is, you know, you're a baby, you're a girl, like there's all of these ridiculous ideas about what it means to cry. And girls get the same messages too in different ways. But crying is actually such a release. Do you know that cortisol actually releases through tears? Wow. That's, yeah, that's a big thing. I I have a lot of of that to do. I'm going to be like, it's going to be gallons if you can measure it in gallons, it's going to be like five tons of stuff. Just like laughing, I would suppose. Yes, absolutely. You only laugh for so long. If you're in a place where you feel like you need to cry and you can't cry, you can't force it. 
So much of learning to become the best version of yourself and to transform is just accepting in a lot of ways and stop putting so much energy into trying to fix everything and just notice and just be present and just be. And in a moment of deep sadness, whether there's tears coming out of your eyes or not, it's this moment of going towards. We talk about this all the time on the show, but it's so important. We are always running away from emotions. We're always running from them, trying to distract ourselves, trying to not feel. And that very thing is what makes emotions more intense. They chase you and they get bigger and they do more and more things to get your attention. So turning around and going right into the sadness, literally putting your hand on your heart, embracing the sadness, releasing and allowing the sadness to come is the best way to feel and it's the best way to heal. Years ago, I tried something called the Sedona Method. It's a popular thing and it's a releasing technique. Mm -hmm. And it basically supposes that there's something between expression and suppression, and that is dropping it, mm -hmm. dropping the, the thing that you know, you're dealing with and just asking, could you just let it go? One of the things they talk about is welcoming. Mm -hmm. You welcome the emotion and you actually ask it to do, ask it to do more. Could you be more? Mm -hmm. And when I did those things, it was one of the first times in my life that I actually felt a change immediately in the moment. Yeah. Immediately. I said, I see you. You're there. Welcome. Could you be even more afraid? Well, that's amazing because then you have control. You're controlling the lever. And one of the techniques that I love to use myself, but, it, but I also teach, is to send love to that feeling. I love you for being there. Thank you, sadness. I love you for looking out for me. I love you for giving me this information. Anxiety is the same. I love you for looking out for me. I love you for constantly coming out swinging and being there for me every time, like sending awareness and love and acceptance and allowance. And it sounds so simple and it sounds terrifying for some people, but you can't run away from feelings. They will always chase you. They will always find you. So you literally have to turn around and allow and, and embrace. And you don't have to do it for hours and hours, just for a little bit. And then you can distract yourself. Our guest today is talented, creative, insightful. She wrote a wonderful book called A Carlin Home Companion, a solo show by the same title, and she hosts The Kelly Carlin Show, heard each and every week on Sirius XM, where she talks to comedians about the big questions. And she happens to be the daughter of George Carlin. Please welcome Kelly Carlin. No one has been surrounded by more comedians in their life from a young age, probably than you. I was surrounded by a particular comedian starting at a young age, but we did not hang out with comics at all growing because, up. When because I was your growing dad up. was smart and he knew that his sanity depended upon getting away from it, right? I think he was just more of a writer personality. He's much more of an introvert than people know. He traveled a lot and he's not a social person party person. My mom was the social person. She loved to have people around and, and, you know, that kind of stuff. But we didn't have parties. We didn't hang out with a lot of people. My dad was 100% a loner. And when your dad was being introverted, now I don't want to, you know, this is about you, really. So I don't want to get into that, that whole thing. But I'm curious about what you picked up about mental health and emotions and dealing with them from your family. I wrote a memoir and a solo yes, show did. 
because we so didn't know how to handle mental health conversations. There was a lot of denial. I mean, there was, yeah, there was a lot of denial in my house. So my mom was alcoholic and addicted later on to Valium and cocaine, uh, but she was pretty much a drinker from the day I came into the world, uh, but really got really, really bad when I turned like nine, 10 and 11, those years were, were, were the worst and where she hit bottom. And then my dad had an addictive personality too, and, and got, you know, was always a kind of a drinker, really, when cocaine came into his, I mean, he smoked weed since he was 14. But when cocaine became a thing in the world, and that like, you know, 70, 71, 72 era, and he started making money and all of that, it, it became, it was pretty bad in our house. My mom was a could could be her personality changed a lot when she drank. So we were always trying to manage her alcoholism. We should have been in Al-Anon, but we didn't know about it back then. My dad knew that I was being affected by all of this. He was, you know, highly aware of that and noticed even at a young age when they they would argue, when they would when they would get mom would get drunk and stuff, they would have bad bad arguments in our house and my dad noticed like even at age like four or five or six, I can't remember what year that would have been. Yeah, like 68. So I was about five. I would sleep on the floor. I would like go in the hallway and sleep in the floor. He'd like just notice these interesting little things I was doing. So he knew I was being affected already by it and felt horrible guilt about it and didn't know what to do because it was 1967, 68, 69. And people didn't know what to do about those things back then. And he had an enormous amount of guilt his entire life until the day he died about what had gone down in my childhood and how hard it was for me. I was an only child and I was I was the parentified child pretty early. I was trying to solve their marital problems, you know, by the time I was age five. You were born so to heal. I was. I was definitely got that wounded healer archetype that they talk about a lot in the Jungian depth psychology world. And I had horrible anxiety uh, and depression, which I didn't even know what it was. I just thought I was going crazy. In high school I had an ulcer. I was so anxious and stressed out and then had panic attack disorder in my early 20s, all the way through my 20s, actually. And we didn't talk about these things in my family. I never told my parents out loud I'm having panic attacks. I was in therapy at the time and stuff, but you know, I don't think I even really ever talked to my therapist about it. Um, I, was, I was wired to be, I should know how to fix this. I should know what to do. And I can't let anyone know I don't know what I'm doing. That was kind of my mentality, which really is not good for mental oh, health. Yeah, you've now all. described what you don't do. I definitely relate and understand that born to heal thing that that like you're being a parent at the age of five. I, I get that. I've experienced that. And how do you start to learn to see yourself? You coach people. You're a certified life coach. You're, you're, you're a master's in, in Jungian psychology, depth psychology. Is that what you came through to heal yourself and, and then pass it on to others? Or how did this all, like, how did you start to see yourself, see who you were? At age 18, I continued my insanity by hooking up with an older man who was 11 years older than me, had a kid, was married, was waiting to divorce his wife because he was going to inherit a bunch of money when he was 30. And he was on probation for a federal weapons charge for making silencers for his doctor and lawyer friends in Beverly Hills. I mean, and he was a cocaine addict. And I mean, like I just stepped further into chaos. And then at age 25, I, I, I married him 
resisted for as long as I could to marry him. He was very much a narcissistic personality disorder guy. At 25, I realized between my panic attacks and my life feeling smaller and smaller and smaller that I had to find a way out. At 18, I dropped out of UCLA due to my panic attacks because I couldn't handle it. And at 25, I reapplied. And back then, the UC system used to let you like, oh, you've already been accepted, just, you know, re-enroll. And so I did. And I knew that was my beginning foundation of path. I'd always been really good at school. And so I think I was drawn to go back to UCLA knowing that A, I'd be out of the house a lot, and that I could do something that I already found joy in and love in and knew I was good at. So I think there's something about moving towards your strengths, and I did it intuitively. And then by age 29, I was ready to leave him. I had the strength to do it. I had spoken to my parents about it at that point. Um, it was very, he was a very controversial person in our lives, as oh, you yeah. can imagine. And at 29, I knew I'm like, I'm going to, you know, I've got my, I was a year away from graduating UCLA and I knew I'm going about to turn 30. And I knew it was like, I have to move on from this. This was, this is a cul-de-sac. This is going nowhere. And I did, I moved on from that. From there, my 30s was really about, me just learning to function away from him at, to, to begin with. And then at age 34, my mom died suddenly. She was young. She was oh 57, a month away from her 58th wow. birthday. And she'd, she'd had an encounter with breast cancer in her 40s and dealt with it and it was fine. But she also had hep C. We kind of all woke up one day. She'd been having symptoms and suddenly she had a lot of tumors on her liver. And she had about, they said she had about three months to live. She ended up dying six weeks later, the chemo actually uh, pretty, pretty much killed her, but um, which, you know, she was, she was going to die. And so, and our family dealt with that the same way we dealt with everything else, which is sweeping it all under the rug and not really talking about it. For me, when she died, I had an enormous awakening happen for me. I I found my strength. I found my feet on the ground. I I found my my vision for my life and it it happened the week of her memorial where I always thought I would fall apart completely if my mom died because pretty much ever since I came into the world I was always waiting for that shoe to drop. I mean, she was an alcoholic and she was she did crazy things and she was always very sick. She had fibromyalgia and all sorts of things. And then the shoe drops. And instead of like having to be medicated and put it to UCLA on a 72 hour hold, which is what I always imagined, this incredible calm came over me. I mean, I could only call it a spiritual awakening. And my mother even came to me in the shower the day after she died. And I, I have no explanation, rational explanation for this, but it happened. She came to me, she put her arms around me, she spoke to me. And she said, you will be okay. And I knew in that moment that I would. And there was some sort, my mother was a very, even though she'd been an alcoholic and stuff, she was an extremely powerful healing force once she got sober. And she was a, a sponsor for many people in AA. And she was kind of the unpaid therapist for a lot of her friends. She was the, she was the wounded healer herself. And so this incredible strength and power came into my body and vision and calmness and a, an incredible sense of love. 
Uh, that's why I call it a spiritual awakening. It really, it really felt like that. And during her memorial, I spoke about a lot of things, Joseph Campbell being one of them and some other things. And as I stood up there at her memorial, I looked around and I thought to myself, this is what I'm supposed to do with my life is to stand in front of people and talk about the really hard things about life and make them accessible and let people know that we all have permission to fall apart or to feel this grief or to feel loss or or to talk about the crazy voices in our head all of that kind of stuff i just i had this very complete vision had no idea what to do with it or how to get there and didn't even really know what it meant but i just knew i'd found my kind of my soul place and like i said i was 34 i didn't i was kind of working in the industry the entertainment industry a little bit here and there and so that's a couple of years later, I, I wrote my first solo show and, and started going that direction. Spalding Gray was my oh hero my God. at the time. Still wow, is. wow, wow, wow. Yeah. You know, a, a man who's willing to talk about his own neurosis on a stage and let us all feel not so alone in the world. That He was really my my model for that. So I wasn't thinking I'd be a healer or anything like that. I still don't see myself that way. I'm not interested in, in, in that archetype too much. But I knew that speaking my truth out loud was in and of itself a healing phenomenon. Yeah, it, it's amazing how, how powerful and clear it is because, you know, a lot of people talk about things, but not a lot of people are actually experiencing the things that they're talking about or being, you know, have, being that open and that present with it. And that is an unusual thing. And it really is that kind of thing that you're describing with your mom coming to you and telling you everything is going to be okay. That kind of love, that kind of centeredness comes from not, yeah. you know, it's not a thought thing. It's not even a feeling thing. It's a, it's a spiritual thing. We're in the middle of grief and we're moving <laughs> through the heroine's journey, the hero's journey, heroin. We're moving sure. Why every- not? Yeah, we're going through, the, and you have to go through all of it. So we were talking about the times in life when you truly come alive. Yeah. There's no efforting. There's tremendous spirit. You're present. You're not trying to do any of these things, but there are events that sort of bring it up. And those events, for me, I mean, I think they're for everybody, is birth, the birth of a child, a marriage, or a death. And my question is, how the hell do we have those things during the other times? It's a great question, Ed. And for me, all of those things that you mentioned are all places in where we have an encounter with something that is bigger than our ego selves. We talk a lot about in depth psychology, this space called the liminal, where we are neither in, we're no longer in kind of the cycle of time and we're no longer in a timeline or a narrative. We're kind of in this in-between place. This, I call it uh, the mushy betwixt in between is what I like to say. And in that space, our ego selves, our personalities are having an experience of life that is not the day-to-day constructed compliant conscious 
life narrative that we normally live. There's some sort of opening that cracks and we can see through it for a moment or two or months or years or forever. And I know like when my mom died and I had that experience where she came to me and all of that, I mean, that liminal space that I really felt like I was living for probably about a year and a half. And same thing after my dad died, quite a long time in this space where I felt like the veil had dropped in some way. And I had access to higher, deeper, wider seeing. And so I really believe that through daily practices, both meditation, mindfulness type practices, where you learn to become a witness to yourself, and you you begin to be able to have a, a detached, compassionate view of this human ego making its way on the planet with all mm. the other egos. Yeah. So you separate yourself out a little bit, not in a psychotic way or not in a splintered kind of a way, but a very connected way. So there's that part of it. But also this ability to see through the lens of deep imagination, which is a, a practice that the that Carl Jung did through active imagination. He wrote, he had this big experience in his life over a few years where he had like waking dreams and encountered a lot of figures and things and ended up writing the Red Book. I mean, he, he created this thing called the Red Book, which was finally published. I think it was published about 15 years ago. But there's this place, this dream time place where we, we encounter that in actual sleeping dream, but also you can do it with daily dream also, where your ego is not in charge of the storyline, but something bigger, you know, the collective unconscious and the personal unconscious are part of the conversation. And I think that helps one see that we're connected to a larger story in some ways, and that the ego is not the bus driver, but that this bigger other consciousness, which is unconscious to us most of the time, is part of the story of life. And so I try myself to live in that space to look through that lens. It's hard, the ego comes walking in the minute you open your eyes and you check your phone or you think about your day or your problems or or whatever it is. Uh, but I try to set morning practices where I do both a mindfulness type of practice, but also a deep imagination, active imagination. Uh, we call it deep high play. I think it's possible, though, Ed. Well, I think that's really interesting. We we talk a lot in the show about imagination as a skill mm-hmm. and imagination as a practice mm-hmm. and, and how you can have the experiences that you think you want. They're available to you at any moment, at any time, in any place, no matter what. And to live... You know, everything that has been created has been created through the imagination. And Absolutely. I listen yep. to this guy, Neville Goddard, and he spoke a lot about that many, many years ago. And he talks about living as if. Mm-hmm. And the power of that and the power of that to deal with present uh, happenings, you know, conflicts, all kinds of things. I know the Quakers 
not the oats people, but the Quakers uh, call <laughs> call for. Although they're pretty good too. That's they're a, lovely. That's a, I eat I eat their product. I do. It, I do. I, it, I agree. It's a I it's it. a nice meal. Uh, those outfits are are heavy, but little, the meal little, is nice. Yeah, the hats are a little awkward, but yeah, they, they're a little bit awkward. But but no, but the I used to go to Quaker meetings, and I think the idea of calling for silence yeah. as a tool is amazing. Is uh, very powerful. Yeah. And the like we talk about with Jennifer all the time. The worst thing that can happen when you close your eyes and paint a picture and imagine what you're wanting, what you want, what your what your dreams are, live in that and then feel it as best as you can. The worst thing that's going to happen from that, you're going to feel better. You're going to feel good. <laughs> exactly. That's the worst thing that can happen. Right. Yes. And our our two things, our hardwired brains you know, the ones that are wired for survival, they're using imagination to keep us alive, even though we're, we don't need to be afraid of tigers anymore. There's some part of our brain that's in constant alert about tigers. And then our constructed selves through our conscious living experience, you know, the, the, the nurture part of ourselves has also constructed a whole storyline about ourselves and uses imagination all day long to keep us safe or to keep us in good stead with the people who have access to the food or the power or whatever it is. So we might as well learn to see our own kind of uh, unconscious imagination, those what I call those hidden narratives. We might as well learn to see them. Okay, well, what's the constructed version of this? And what's the brain the you know there's really not a reptilian brain and all that kind of stuff, but that kind of low-lying primal brain what's going on there and then if they're able to construct our reality like you said what's the worst that can happen if we decide to do different self talk or have different vision mm. for an outcome uh mm. you know self talk is we're doing it all day long to ourselves just we're just doing it unconsciously we might as well bring it up into the conscious level and be really like good and like the best cheerleader champion, you know, like Bill Plotkin, I don't know if you're familiar with him, he talks about the nurturing mm. parent, making this nurturing parent active inside of us. And I find myself when I was launching my business three years ago, I'd never really launched a business I'd never been an entrepreneur. I felt way out of my comfort zone. I was working and still do with this big business coach. And I would just say to I find myself in the kitchen saying things to myself like, you're doing great, Kelly. You're doing great and you're doing enough. You're doing enough and you're doing great. Because my normal self-talk is I'm not enough. I'm never doing enough because that's what the culture kind of teaches us. And mm -hmm. I don't know how I'm doing. Like I feel like I'm I'm never doing good, you know? So I just learned to switch it around and it has changed everything for me, just those two sentences. Yeah, that's amazing because again, we we talk about this, we talk about mantras, the need for the need for personal mantras. And then self-talk, it's your feelings are talking to you all the time, your thoughts are talking to you all the time. How come you can't talk back? Like why isn't there a conversation going? It's it's like somebody's yes. knocking on the door, you're not answering the door. It's you're it's, being you're being told 24 hours a day that there's a, there are messages for you in your message box. You're not, well, you're not answering them. And Ed, this is like, you know, the, like the thing I love about getting to do this work with people is just introducing people to this concept alone is a game changer. 
Like, it you is. know, all, all the other stuff I want to teach them in the heroine's journey and writing their new narratives and blah, 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 and all that kind of, I mean, great. It's all wonderful. But if you can start to turn toward yourself, this is like the first thing I teach them is I teach them how to turn toward themselves through some sort of daily journaling or daily meditation where you can start to hear the voices that are there all the time and, and, and get to know them and hear like, oh, wow. Like, and I always say to them, how old do you think that voice is? Like, how old is she? Is she six years old? Is she a six-year-old version of you trying to make your way through the family system? You know, is this the 16-year-old you, you know, in charge of this voice and has this idea? Because, you know, these different phases of life, our priorities become a little different. You know, is the eight-year-old in charge of picking your snacks? Because, you know, listen in, listen in. And, you know, you get people to just start to hear themselves. And at first it may be uncomfortable because it's like, oh, that's a shit show. Hmm. But then you start to introduce this, the kind fairy godmother or the, the aunt that you love or the great, you know, older neighbor who was kind to you, like these kinder voices that you already do have that you have experienced in your life. Let's make them the ones who come forward and are, are here to walk with you and companion you. Yeah. If you woke up in the morning, closed your eyes and imagine the face of a person that you love mm -hmm. and just stayed with that for a minute. You smile to them and you stay with that for a minute. A minute. Yep. These kinds of things are available all the time. The other thing is the, the, the directions of your thoughts and where they go, where thoughts go, energy flows. Jennifer always says, the direction of your thoughts can be changed. They can be shifted just by what you're talking about. Like my brain all day long thinks I'm in danger. Yes. Like all day long. For like, sure. Yep. I'm in danger. I'm in danger. I'm in danger. That's what I hear 24 hours a day. Now, what I might do is I might talk back and say, gee, I'm so glad you're here to protect me. Yeah. Gee, this is really nice of you to protect me. You know what? I'm okay. And you can look around, right? I mean, this is another thing about reality testing. And when I had panic attacks, I really had to teach myself this. Like, Cognitive behavioral stuff saved, I mean, I'm a depth psychologist, and but cognitive behavioral stuff saved my life around my panic attacks because it is about reality testing. And yeah, you look around and you say, okay, am I safe right now? And you really look around. Oh, there is a roof over my head. I've got food in my belly. I have a loved one in the house. Uh, there's no tigers. There's no bears. Oh my. And, uh, mm -hmm. and you really do some reality testing. You know, this is the thing you were talking about, the choice. I never thought I had choice. I thought I'm going to feel my feelings and think my thoughts and that they're like sacred because they come to me spontaneously in some ways. And I kind of for a long time rejected that I could change my own mood because I, you know, I wanted to honor my feelings and stuff like that. And I think part of that's because I didn't feel very seen and heard in my family of origin. I was pretty invisible in the world because of my dad's fame, but also because, you know, the chaos made me feel invisible and powerless. And so a lot of us have that kind of powerless storyline that we lived if we grew up in chaos. I remember when I went to life coaching training and learned about this thing about the ability to shift one's perspective at like a snap of the fingers and that you could choose what you were thinking or feeling in a moment and I accepted that premise, then it was like, oh, 
this is a game changer because I don't have to be the victim of my moods all day long. I certainly don't have to be the victim of circumstance because I can choose how I see the circumstance. I think of Viktor Frankl's book about surviving the camps and of the Holocaust and how the resilience of man, the people who were resilient and came out of those situations were the people who could really frame the circumstance in a very different way than the ones who framed it as being purely victimized by it. And that mm. those people came out with a mental health, you know, so much more mental health because of it. It's such a, once again, another life changing thing, because it's mm -hmm. like, if you get that you're in choice, then boy. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the resilience of, this, of the spirit is amazing. Almost any problem, any issue that you can imagine, you can imagine its opposite. And those things are, are accessible all the time. And there's a lot to talk about here. We're going we're gonna to have to do this. We're going to do it again. Uh, two things. One is that you have a menu of things to choose from in this world. And when you wake up, you have a menu. And if your menu is MSNBC or, or yeah. CNN, if that's what's on your menu or Fox yeah. News. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is that everything that feels like it's comforting and familiar is actually not yeah. good for you. If you said to people that, you know, a, a goal is, is not comfort. Comfort is not being alive. Yeah. Comfort is feeling different things at the same time. It's the feeling of birth and marriage and death. It's a spiritual thing. And that's when you're alive. Yeah. You're not alive when you're sitting. It, it, it's, and it's not to demonize. It's not to say, well, we all need to do all these things, but we need to choose them. Like if you choose to stay in bed all day and you say, I'm making a choice, I'm going to stay in bed all day, fine. Yeah, but do you it consciously. You consciously, chose it. Yeah, consciously make the choice. Don't let these things make the choice for you. And, you know, and there's always that other, that like under layer thing, like you were talking about the MSNBC thing, like, you know, people want that stuff on because, I mean, I think about it, it's like, yeah, people will say, well, I want to be informed. And I'll say to them, okay, well, there's a much more calmer, easier way to be informed than putting your nervous system through five hours of MSNBC or CNN or Fox. It's called once a day reading the headlines on some media that you, that you respect. You don't need to be that informed as a citizen. Because all you're really watching are soap operas when you're watching those shows. What are you, what are you really getting out of that? Uh, People love their outrage these days, too. That's the other thing. And it's like, what are you really getting out of this outrage from uh, either side? Addiction and dopamine. Addiction yep. and dopamine. That's what, yep. that's what you're getting. You look at your phone, you're getting addiction and dopamine, which means you're going to go up and you're going to yep. go way down and then you got to go up again. So this is what's happening with dopamine. Look, if I'm the greatest invention in the world, if I'm starting a business and I'm, I'm my mind is consumerism and making money, I'm going to figure out that people how to get to their dopamine. Sure. And then and then I'm going to make a lot of money. Yeah. I'm going to make a lot of money off of people being sucked in chemically 
to what I'm making. If people like, you know, we, we were joking earlier about talking about, you know, the heroine's journey and heroin, but here we are, you know, I mean, social media, it is taking over your brain the exact same way as is all, all the crazy media these days, the exact same way that heroin or tobacco or any of that stuff, cocaine takes over your brain. It is a false hijacking of your neurology. We get to be in charge of it. And just making people even conscious of the roller coaster ride that they're signing up for every day by going on it. I mean, I think we're doing better now with that communication. But boy, you know, I think about Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, uh, which was such an incredible book about the media and the distraction of it and all of that. And I think, oh my God, that like that book, every kid going to school starting in elementary school, needs to be educated about this stuff. Like this kind of education needs to be as important or even more important than learning how to, you know, do your times tables during this modern era. Yeah. And if you're a creative teacher, you can do, you can, you could teach both. Yep. One, one is a yes. principle for the other. Okay. Yes. We're, okay, everybody, we're about to do math. Let's <laughs> yeah. take a breath. Yes. Hey, yes. let's all take a breath. Because as soon as I said the word math, you went into shock. Yeah, exactly. All your anxiety so, went up. Yeah, exactly. Didn't it, didn't it? Oh, let's learn about anxiety now. It's an ecosystem. Education should be an ecosystem. It's an I ecosystem of things that are connected and not separate. It's amazing to me that, you know, we just don't, and, and, and I'm included in this because I'm watching MSNBC. I mean, one of the things for me is that I've known this stuff since I was five, like a lot of kids, like you. And I've known exactly, you know, the, I, I know what is what this is, but I do, and I do run away from it often, and I do go unconscious a lot. Yeah. And, and I'm in, even telling people about it, and I'm still going unconscious a lot. You know, and that's why when I stepped into learning about Buddhism and mindfulness, I mean, that's why they call it a Buddhist practice, because every day you have to remind yourself of how to do it differently, because the default setting is going unconscious and just kind of being invisible in our own lives. And so for everybody, that's why we sit every day, or that's why we practice breathing techniques or mantras or whatever it is, is because it it is this constant dance we have to do between the part of us that's witnessing all of this and the part of us that's, you know, is, is just kind of blindly driving the bus. And it's work. It, it takes effort. It's not work. It takes some effort. Where do they go to find out more? Where do they go to find out about Women on the Verge? Where do they go to find out about you? If you're interested in Women on the Verge, you can go to womenonthevergecoaching.com. People can find me on Twitter at Kelly underscore Carlin. And then I have a website, thekellycarlin.com, which has a lot of my stuff on it, solo show stuff, my book. You are a fascinating person. I always love talking to you. And you're going to come on and we're going to do Ted Lasso. Oh, my God. I so love that, Ed. I'm such okay. a fan. So yes. We're going to take a lasso around lasso. That's what I, we're going to do. Okay. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Okay. All right. A pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Ed. A pleasure hey. to be here. Thanks to Kelly for joining us today. And thanks to all of you for listening. And thanks, as always, to my co-host, Jennifer Kalari. You can learn more about Jennifer's work at ConnectedParenting.com. 
You can also find us on the Believe Network, B-L-E-A-V dot com. You can find us at MakeLightMedia.com, MakeLightMedia.com. You can write to us and tell us what's going on. Tell us what works and what doesn't. Tell us what you'd like help with. We'd love to help. You can write us at ed at MakeLightMedia.com, ed at MakeLight, one word, media.com. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I'm Ed Krasnick for Jennifer Kalari. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.